I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you will want to get out your sermon outline. It says, A Witness for Christ. It's in bright yellow today. Gospel of John in chapter 1. We're going to be in chapter 1, I think, the whole month. Um, This is the second sermon in the series of John, and we're in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. These are those verses that are sort of there, but people tend to just read them and skip right over them because they just sound sort of vague and not real applicable or personal, but... Um, I think there's a lot here for us this morning. Let's hear from John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have your word before us this morning. We've heard from you already in prayer and in praise and in the sacrament. Father, we pray now that we'd hear from you again in your word. Open our hearts and minds that you might be active in our lives through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember back in the uh, late 80s when I was in the Army Reserves and I was assigned for several weeks to a basic training brigade at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, most of which is actually in Tennessee, but the post office is in Kentucky, so it's Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And and so one weekend when I was there, uh, we, we were off for the day and several of us went we're able to go up and visit the Mammoth Caves National Park in Kentucky. And it's this great national park and this huge cave system. The Mammoth Caves are the largest underground cave system in the United States, at least that we know about. It's hard to describe how big uh, they are and how far underground it stretches. They have mapped over 350 miles of caves and passageways, and they haven't mapped it all yet. And you can take tours, and you can do like me and take the, you know, the half hour or 45 minute tour, but they have the six hour tour, and they have the three day tour, and the one week tour, and um, you got to be a real serious caver to do that stuff, you know, it's, um, which I'm not, so I did the half hour uh, tour, the, uh, But there are these great huge caverns, and they're hundreds of feet underground. And in order to enter them, the park rangers had strung lights along these dark, wet, narrow, twisting passageways. And you've got to sort of follow this down. And most of the time, they've sort of stuck handrails there, but not always. And it's not real easy. And you get down, and um, 
you get to the bottom and there's this room with benches and they ask you to sit down on the benches and so everybody comes down and files in and sits down on the benches and there're probably you know 40 50 people uh in this group and we sit down and once everybody's down the park rangers turn off the lights and it was dark i mean it was really really dark i mean you couldn't see your face your hand right in front of your face. I tried. You could see nothing. It was the darkest. I mean, there was no ambient light at all. And that's why they had you sitting on the bench so nobody would sort of like freak out and run away because you couldn't see where you were going. I mean, you could see nothing. And then one of the rangers moves the par- moves to the middle of the cave and he lit a match. And the whole place lit up. And we realized we were in a gigantic cave about the size of this auditorium. A good 150, 200 feet underground. And I was struck by the fact that we're seeing this great big cave by the light of one tiny little match that could easily blow out. You know, but this time, complete strangers are sort of holding on to each other like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I don't even know who you are, but we're going together. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, and I was remembering that incident as I came to this text because it's about light. And I thought how dark our hearts must be. And yet the light of one man, Jesus Christ, is able to flood the darkness of our hearts, all of our hearts, with a light that cannot be put out. One man, millions and millions and millions of people. And I was just struck by that scene of that one match lighting up the whole uh, gigantic auditorium, that gigantic cave at Mammoth Parks. That's what this text is about. That one light that floods the darkness, that removes the darkness, that drives the darkness out. Last week we looked at the first five verses of John chapter 1. And in verse 4 we read, In him Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. And we learn that Jesus is not only the life, he is also the light. In fact, this is another claim he made for himself in John chapter 8. He said again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it is Jesus himself who shines in the darkness. John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God, through his spoken word, gave light for the physical world. And here in John 1, we read that God, through his living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave light for the spiritual world. And the power of his light exposes the darkness of our hearts, and the warmth of his light calls us to him. As David wrote in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And thus I believe that Christ wants us to live in him in the light, 
not to live away from him in the darkness of a world that doesn't understand him. And later John would write in 1 John uh, 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And it's the same message today. It's a message he wants us to share with others. And for that to happen and for others to believe what we say, then we must know why Christianity is believable and then act like we really do believe it. And we must know why Jesus Christ is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings meaning to each one of our lives. And we must know why it is Jesus Christ who lives, reigns, and is coming again. And we must be able to tell others in a way that they can understand. And that is the purpose of John's gospel. And I'm going to come back almost every week to the purpose of this gospel. John chapter 20, the key verse, uh, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what the gospel of John is all about. So before we dive into the text, I need to do a little uh, backing up and remind, be reminded of a few things and sort of going to cover a little bit uh, more briefly what we talked about last week. But we'll start with the Apostle John, who's the writer of this gospel. It's now A.D. 90, give or take a few years, and he is the last of the disciples. And you have to remember that. That's one of the keys to understanding this book. The community of the seven uh, churches that he pastors is situated along a postal road, and uh, it stands in awe of him. They call him John the Elder, and it's much a description of him as it is a title because he's at least over 80 years old, and that rarely happened in the first century. That was kind of like being 120 today. And um, he was a simple man from a simple place, a follower, a disciple of Jesus, someone Jesus loved, someone Jesus trusted. With his own hands, he had touched Jesus. That may not sound like a big deal. I remember being in Jerusalem and walking uh, through Jerusalem, and there was a place that you come where they have excavated because there's always archaeological uh, digs going on in and around there. And they said, this is one of the few places we think actually existed when Jesus was alive. And it's possible that he walked on these very stones. And you just got goosebumps. You walked on those stones thinking, I may, don't know, but may be walking someplace that Jesus actually walked. And, uh, and you know, while it's been a long time and there's nothing magical, it just sort of, you know, got the goosebumps up and said, wow, that's really amazing. But think about it. John was somebody who had been with Jesus. He had touched Jesus. He had looked into Jesus' eyes and touched his face. He had been hugged by Jesus. And John's asking himself all these years now, it's been some 60 years, what does it all mean? What does Jesus mean for people? And you have to understand, things are getting really confusing in the church now, in the world now. People are starting to question what Jesus said, what Jesus did, who Jesus was. And there's only one apostle left. They've, all the others have been martyred. And the only one left is John. 
All the key members of the first church in Jerusalem are gone. In fact, Jerusalem itself is gone, destroyed some 20 years earlier. Peter and Paul have been martyred for some 25 years now. All the rest of the New Testament has been written except for John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, which are all written by the Apostle John. Nothing from John. And for these people to stand in the presence of the last living disciple of Christ was to realize he needed to write down as much as he knew before he died and his lips were silenced forever. And so he wrote because they wouldn't leave him alone until he did. And he wrote because the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave him alone until he did. And he wrote because he missed the sound of Jesus' voice so much that it broke his heart. And I think maybe he wrote perhaps in the hope that through the recording, the writing down of Jesus' words, then in his mind he might again hear that familiar sound of Jesus' voice. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been well circulated. They've been written for some 20, 30 years, and all the churches have read them. And everyone knew the stories they contained by heart. And so John is setting out to fill in the gaps. And he skipped the well-known stories uh, so that he could substitute the ones that no one had ever heard and the stories that were never written down and the stories that he'd been telling and preaching for more than 60 years. And so here they are in this book, the words, the thoughts, the feelings of the last living disciple, the last person left alive who walked with Jesus. So hear them well in this series. I want you to sit at the feet of John the Elder. Listen to what he has to say about this Lord of his, this friend that he had leaned against at the Last Supper and on whom he's been leaning ever since and on whom he wants each one of us to lean on. Because the one he's writing about is Christ the Lord. This is the most relational book in the Bible. John doesn't write about doctrine. He writes about how Jesus related to people. And he remembered the wedding uh, where Jesus solved the problem of running out of wine and got the host off the hook. And he thought of the blind beggar that nobody noticed except for Jesus. And he pondered Jesus' tender teaching to the Samaritan woman and his tough words with a Pharisee at night. And he takes us with great detail on a storybook journey through Jesus' encounters with people. And it is quite remarkable A lot of people, if you've seen the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy or read those books, many people think they are based on John. And um, he met all kinds of people. He, He dined with the rich and associated with the outcasts and had pity on the sinners and helped the needy. And every level, every station, Jesus had just the right words at just the right time. And we need to think as we go through this gospel, these could be people in our life. They could be your neighbors. They could be your relatives. You know, the cranky old guy lives around the corner. He's in John's gospel. The guy at church who still can't see God, he's here. Jesus ran into him. The grief-stricken widow, the pregnant teen, your mother-in-law, you'll see them all in John so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In these opening verses, John introduces us to the centerpiece of the whole gospel. Usually, these first 18 verses are referred to as the prologue. 
just kind of like an introduction. And John's gospel can be more or less divided into two parts. The first 12 chapters introduce us to the signs that Jesus gives of his real identity, the scene in the miracles that he performs. And there's a series of seven miracles. And the first half of the Gospel of John is often referred to as the book of signs. And then from chapter 13 to the end of the Gospel, Jesus withdraws from the world and focuses on uh, his ministry on the disciples and discloses to them some of the most profound ministry uh, uh, mysteries of his person and his mission. And we have the discourse in the upper room in John uh, 14, 15, and 16. We have the high priestly prayer in John 17. All of that is before us. In all these chapters, Jesus is revealing something of his glory. So the second half of the book of John is sometimes referred to as the book of glory. So you have the book of signs and the book of glory. But these verses are a prologue to those two halves of the Gospel of John. And what we have in the prologue is a little bit like the introduction to a film, the opening segment where some of the major themes of the story are shown in small little snippets. And so the reference here on the prologue to light and life and glory are all things that John will enlarge upon in his Gospel. He wants us to see John 1.16, and from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. And how have we received it? John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's why he's written this gospel. And that's why he focuses upon Jesus, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life. In his name. So let's dive into the text for today and see, first of all, in verse 6, that John was sent. John was sent. That should be the first blank there in your outline. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. You know, if that was the only thing that was ever written about John, that would be profound. You know, that you're in the Bible and the only thing people know about you is your name was John and you were sent by God. That's probably enough. You know, we can sort of close the book and go on. That's a pretty good introduction. And we've been looking at the person of Jesus and all the things the Apostle John says about him in the gospel. But now we turn to the second person. And this John here, this man sent from God, is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John the Apostle is writing about John the Baptist. And I'll keep using those terms so we don't get the... Uh, the two guys mixed up. But John the Baptist has mentioned that we might learn about his witness to Christ. And we tend to overlook the importance of the ministry of John the Baptist. We focus, as we should, on the ministry of Jesus Christ. We remember that John the Baptist was only the forerunner of the Lord. And John the Apostle says that John the Baptist came to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's his reason for being, so to speak. John himself is quoted in John 3.30, as Dave quoted to you early, that he said, he, Christ, must increase and I must decrease. And yet if John the Baptist hadn't lived in that age, and if the preparation uh, of Christ's way hadn't been his primary ministry, no doubt I think we would still look back on him with the highest praise, as much as we look back on Isaiah or Daniel or Jeremiah or Amos or any of the other great Old Testament prophets. Certainly John was a charismatic figure, 
We read that hordes of people went out to hear, much as they did to hear Jesus later on. And this following was so substantial it disturbed uh, the priests in Jerusalem who sent delegates out to investigate what John was doing. And in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us uh, that some of those priests also repented and were baptized as a sign that they had turned from their sins. In some sense, John is the pivot of biblical history. We read in Luke 16 that the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And that means that even though he's in the New Testament, that John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. After him, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, which was entered from that time uh, by faith in Christ, that they could see him. Although salvation is always by faith in Christ, even in the Old Testament. So John the Baptist had earned the praise of Jesus. He said in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And last verse refers primarily to the fact that those who come after John and believed in Christ would receive the Holy Spirit. But it also refers to, I think, John's extraordinary humility. Jesus said the one who humbles himself will be exalted, and John certainly uh, did that and humbled himself. He called himself a voice crying in the wilderness. You can't see a voice. You can only hear it. So thus it's John's role and pleasure merely to be the herald of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's concern was solely that Jesus be magnified, whether by his life or by his death, and in this he's a true and faithful forerunner. He's sent by God. Second, we see that John was a witness. He's a witness. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was known for his ministry of baptism, hence the name John the Baptist, for the fact that he baptized Jesus. However, when John the Apostle refers to John the Baptist here in the first chapter. He doesn't initially mention John's ministry. He doesn't initially mention John's baptism of Jesus. He focuses solely on his witness to Christ. In this sense, the witness of John the Baptist takes its place in the first chapter of the gospel as an established historical testimony. So we might learn that the one who was the light of the world was identified historically for men and women to respond in faith. We see this emphasis upon John's witness by the way in which John the Apostle handles the material about John the Baptist. Most noticeably is the absence in the Gospel of John of many things, many aspects of John the Baptist's ministry that are present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John eliminates all references to John the Baptist's preaching of repentance. All mention of him as the herald of God's coming kingdom. He doesn't report the baptism of Jesus at all, although he does show Jesus to be present in the area of the Jordan River uh, during John's ministry. And even though the baptism is sort of the crowning point of John the Baptist's ministry and all the other gospels, apparently the actual baptism didn't interest John the apostle all that much. Everything is focused on Jesus. In a place of the baptism, there is Jesus. 
And in place of the act, there is the proclamation of Jesus. And the final proof of this unique interest on the part of John the Apostle is all the words used for witness replace those for preaching found in the other Gospels. In all the other Gospels, it says John came preaching. In John, it says John is a witness as used to describe his ministry. And so John the Baptist emerges as the first and greatest witness to the person and work of Christ. So we see that John was a witness. Second, or third, and most important, verse 8, we see that John was not Jesus. John was not Jesus. It says he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It would be almost impossible to underestimate the popularity of John the Baptist. The Jewish historian Josephus actually wrote more about John the Baptist than he wrote about Jesus. And as late as A.D. 200, another 110 years after John was writing, some of his followers still worshipped him as the Messiah, not Jesus. In Acts 19, we meet believers who still only know about John's baptism. This part of the story took place some 60 years uh, before John was writing, when John the Baptist was at the height of his popularity. And it helps us to see the importance of John the Baptist coming right at the beginning of John's gospel. Jesus has been established as the light. And so it's critically important for John's readers to hear that John the Baptist is not that light. We're going to be studying the actual testimony of John the Baptist later on. It comes a little bit later in this chapter. But at this point, we have an outline of what made the witness of John effective as a forerunner of Christ. It's important because it tells us how we can be effective as we seek to bear witness to Christ. It's stated very clearly in verses 7 and 8, and it has three parts. John writes that the Baptist was sent from God. One, he was not the light, but two, he was sent to bear witness to the light in order that three men might believe through him. And that's the outline he employs here in chapter 1, immediately following. Verses 19 to 28 shows that John the Baptist was not the light. Verses 29 to 34 picture him pointing to the light. And verses 35 to 51 show how that witness resulted in the first men coming to believe in Christ. Think about what that means for you personally. In the first place, John was aware that he was not the light. That's important. You need to know that you are not Jesus. That's not tremendously uh, disappointing new news for you. But all any witnessing to Christ has to start with that realization. Whenever a Christian, a minister, a writer, a teacher, whoever, gets to thinking there's something important about him or her, you know, I'm really good at this. You know, I've got a really big church or, you know, I've got, you know, people listen to me or everybody at work really respects me or as soon as we start getting just that little bit of importance you know I'm I'm not a bad Christian God's pretty lucky to have me on his team
then he or she will usually at that point stop being effective as a witness for Christ. The testimony of of what uh, Jesus has done, how Christ has changed my life, just stops. Or it becomes a testimony of my life, just a look at me, look at what I've done. Second, we see that John bore witness to the light. And that's important also because there's lots of shy and uncertain Christians who feel that they're bearing a witness simply because they're living the Christian life or because they're refusing to do bad things or they're doing other good things. And so they live the Christian life at work, at school, in their homes. And that's important. That's a good thing. We should all do that. But it is not in and of itself witnessing. So what Paul Little is the author of a helpful little book called How to Give Away Your Faith. It's probably 40 years old at this point, but it's still excellent. He calls that pre-evangelism. That living the faith is the essential basis for any effective witness. If we don't live what we profess, then our profession of faith in Christ will be discredited. And yet living the faith by itself is not witnessing because witnessing is actually speaking to others about Jesus. It's implied in the very word itself. Witnessing is actually a legal term uh, that points to verbal testimony rendered in a court of law. Testimony and witness are key concepts that reoccur throughout the Gospel of John. And as legal terms, they have to do not with a person's opinion or experience, but with objective fact. A witness at a trial is asked to testify to what he or she actually saw or heard, not what they thought or not what they speculated. Quite simply, they are to tell the truth. And if we are to do this truth-telling effectively, we must be able to tell who Jesus is, what he said about a sin, about the depravity of man, why his death and resurrection are essential elements to the solution to the problem of man's sin and how one comes into a personal relationship with him. Finally, the witness must be given with the object in mind that other people would believe in Christ. It's not just to say what you know, God has done in my life or how God's changed me or I was this you know, horrible person and now I'm you know, really good. Um, but it's given with the object that other people would have a response. We're told here in this passage, John was a witness so that all might believe through him. And it should be obvious, yet it's so necessary simply because it's possible for someone to become so mechanical in their Christian life that you go through all the motions without ever actually seeking or praying for that other person to respond to Christ in faith. And if we could remember that, we would find talking to other people about Christ exciting, and we would learn that winning the argument becomes far less important than winning the person to the Lord. Two conclusions follow from all those verses. First, when a witness is so given, that is, with the awareness on the part speaking, that he or she is not the light, and is only pointing to the light in order that these other people might believe, then this says that men and women will believe. That's God's way of doing things. He says that he's chosen to save men and women by the foolishness of preaching, and this means by the foolishness of talking about Jesus. 
And it may be foolish in the eyes of others, but Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we'll have a demonstration of this in the remainder of John chapter 1. Because after John is born witness to the light, we will hear in John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle John then records a whole string of disciples who followed Jesus as a result of this testimony. First, there were two disciples, one of whom was Andrew, and Andrew found his brother Simon, and Simon became a follower. And after that, there was Philip and then Nathaniel, and then there were others. And clearly, when a witness to Christ is given in the way that John the Baptist gave it, people will believe. The second conclusion is related to that, and it's simply, if you'll witness in this, and women will believe as a result of your testimony. Seven is a big, important number in the Gospel of John. There are seven signs or miracles. There are seven I am statements by Christ. There are several other lists of seven that show up in this Gospel. And John mentions seven different kinds of witnesses. First is Christ himself. Second is God the Father. Third is the Holy Spirit. Fourth is the witness of the Scriptures. Fifth is the witness of Christ's works, his signs, his miracles. Six is the witness of John the Baptist, which we've just considered. And that's six witnesses, but there's one more. And it's the witness of the ordinary people that show up in the gospel. Ordinary men and women. And you and I are included in this last category of witnesses. And what does that mean? It means that God regards your testimony as being important enough to be included amongst all those other monumental testimonies to the person and work of Christ. Your testimony may not have a very wide scope. It may not be as world-embracing as the testimony of the scriptures. Uh, it may not be as spectacular as, say, the testimony of John the Baptist. But it's still very important because you know a special aspect of Christ's work to which only you can point adequately. You know what he has done in your life. And what is more, as you do talk about what he's done and therefore witness to him, men and women will come to know him as their savior. Let me give you an example of what that change looks like. Yellow is not my favorite color. But this morning I'm wearing a yellow shirt. Picked a couple banners that have yellow in them. For the first time you got a message outline in yellow, bright yellow. Why so much yellow? Because I read about this story of Vincent van Gogh, the famous Dutch painter. And I've come to val value the color yellow a little bit differently. This famous Dutch painter, sadly, tossed away the truth imparted to him in his Christian home and sank into depression and despair and destruction. But by the grace of God, right near the end of his life, as he began to embrace truth again, his life took on hope. And so he gave that hope a color. And the, one of the best kept secrets of Van Gogh's life is that the truth he was discovering is seen in the gradual increase in the presence of the color yellow in his paintings. Yellow evoked for him the hope and the warmth 
the truth of God's love. Can we put up the first picture? This is probably one of his most famous paintings. It's called The Starry Night. And it was painted in one of his most depressed periods. He was really down, and he was actually thinking about killing his partner. He was thinking about killing himself. And there's a yellow sun and some yellow swirling stars because he thought God's truth could only be found in nature. Tragically, there's a church right in the bottom center. It stands tall in the painting. It should be the house of truth. And it's just about the only item in the painting showing no traces of yellow. But his life changed. Let's put up the next picture. This is his picture, the raising of Lazarus. And his life was on the mend at this point as he began to face the truth about himself. This entire picture is blindingly bathed in yellow. In fact, Van Gogh put his own face on Lazarus to express his own hope in the resurrection. Yellow tells the whole story that life can begin all over again because the truth of God's love. Each of us, whether it's with actual yellows or metaphorical yellows, can begin to paint our lives the fresh hope of a new beginning. You can shut that off. Some, perhaps like Vincent van Gogh, may need to start opening their hearts to God. Some nearly, uh, merely need to hop back on the tracks after failures have derailed them. Some need a time of retreat to once again God's restoring spirit. Some are suffering through broken relationships and struggle to glue together the remaining chunks of their life. Others are enduring a particularly stressful time at work and need to settle into a more balanced life. Some have lost jobs, and they need to hear that God is still with them. Some are swirling in an, sort of an internal vertigo as a result of illness. Others struggle with children packing off and leaving home or leaving for college. Not all of us, but some. Some are grieving the deaths of a friend, a spouse, a parent, a child. Each of us sometimes needs to begin life all over again. And if the promise is that we can begin again, the question is how? And the first thing we need to do is return to the Jordan River where the prophet John the Baptist urges his listeners then and now to begin again. And he does it by pointing to the light. Beloved, those believers that John originally penned uh, this great gospel for lived in a world of religious and cultic growth, of false teachings of health and wealth, of campaigns to save the republic or the empire or the nation, of making the Roman law or our judicial system absolute, and dealing with the intolerance of multinational or multicultural correctness. It described his world pretty accurately describes our world too. And those people 
that John was writing to in those churches, they didn't go to church to hear more of those things, nor did they go to church to hear the pastor incorporate those things into his message. The first readers and hearers of John's gospel were hungry and thirsty for Christ because he was their spiritual food and drink. They were darkness seeking the light of the world. They were guilty, unworthy sinners in need of a lamb to bear their transgressions. And so they eagerly read this gospel of the Christ, the Son of God, because he gave them what their world could not. And there are days when just like them, we're the ones in darkness. We're the ones who are hungry. We're the ones who need the light. And it is those of us who are most profoundly aware of our own sin and need, and in consequence, who most deeply feel the wonders of God's grace, that he's reached out and saved them, even them. Those are the ones most likely to talk about themselves as the objects of God's love in Christ Jesus. And it is because we are the beloved, the ones so loved by him that he will change us and transform us by grace alone. If you remember, John saw himself as the son of thunder. By the end of his life, he was known as the apostle of love. That change, that transformation wasn't arrogance on his part. It was brokenness transformed by wonder. He was overwhelmed by Jesus' love for him in the midst of his sin. And we need to be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin. And shallow understanding of how much we are loved will make us weak witnesses for Christ. We need to believe that the gospel is not just that the gospel is true, but that it's true for me, that it's true for you, it's true for us. That's what will make us Passionate believers who've been transformed by the love of Christ and then who will have some of that same love overflowing from us to our families, our neighbors, our bosses, students, and even to the people who sit next to us at church. And perhaps we'll even find ourselves noticing the color yellow a whole lot more than we did before. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Heavenly Father, it sounds so simple to say that we are not the light. But deep down, we really like to be. We want people to look at us. We want to be noticed and respected and loved and, and welcomed and have people look up to us and think well of us. And yet we see John the Baptist, who is a great man, who spent his life pointing to someone else who said, don't look at me, look at him, look at Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we need to learn how to point people away from us 
We're not telling them how great our life is, but how great Christ is and what he's done to change our life and that he can change their life too. Father, help us become people who point to the light. Probably not going to do that real easily on our own. We need your spirit to work in us, to change us, to change our minds and our hearts, to help us become people who point to the light. We ask this morning that you would do that for each one of us, that we would know that we are not the light, but that we would bear witness to the light, that we would point people to Jesus. Help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.